This morning we're going to be in the book of Philippians together, so I invite you to open your scriptures uh, to Philippians chapter 1. We know as we, we read Philippians that uh, the church in Philippi had a, a particular uh, special place in the heart of the Apostle Paul. This was a church that uh, he writes to with great fondness, with great joy, with great uh, love. And as he writes to them, uh, he speaks very clearly about his relationship with them. He talks about how they had been his partners in the gospel from the very beginning and how they were participants of grace uh, with him. And so we want to look this morning uh, at Paul's, the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians, specifically at his prayer for them. And as we look at this uh, Paul's words to this church, you know, I, I, I think in some ways I kind of feel about Colonial Baptist Church maybe the same way Paul felt about uh, the church at Philippi. This church is a, a dear church to us. Uh, you have been our partners in the gospel for many, many years, and we just love this church. We have loved uh, having the opportunity to be here uh, and get plugged in so much on this furlough. So if you're, if you're with me in Philippians chapter 1, we're going to go ahead and read actually the entire first chapter, and then we're going to come back and we're going to focus especially on Paul's prayer and how he fleshes that out, how he explains uh, that. So let's go ahead and read, starting in verse 1, we read this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. And I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, but the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice." Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. 
as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So as we look at this text of scripture and as we look at, examine what Paul says to the Philippians, we want to start examining in verse 9 is really the, uh, where Paul gets into his prayer for the Philippian church. And he says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. As Paul prays for them, as he thinks of these dear friends of his, and what he wants to see happen in their lives through the power of God, he prays for a love that will abound, that will grow, that will overflow. That, that just keeps on going. And he qualifies this with two statements. He says, hey, he prays that their love will abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Now, when Paul talks about knowledge here, he is not just talking about an intellectual understanding. That we know more facts about God. But in learning more and growing more in our knowledge of God, that will translate into a corresponding manner of life. So Paul is saying that this love should be growing in our hearts as our knowledge of God grows, as we know God more, we love him more, and that is then fleshed out in the way that we live. He adds to that, that our love grows with knowledge and all discernment or insight. And this word carries the idea of a capacity to perceive something clearly and therefore to understand its true nature. And so this idea of a love that is growing, that is a love based on knowledge and insight, it's as we learn more and we flesh that out in a particular context. I guess we could illustrate this as imagine a young man who is ready to get married. And he is just, he, he's there on his wedding day and no one's doubting 
his love for his bride. He's professing his love for his bride. But yet, as he goes along in his relationship, in his marriage, his love should grow. He should be learning more and more about his wife, about who she is, about what she likes and dislikes. And as he learns more about his wife and grows in his love, he's going to be better able to flesh out the love that he has for her in appropriate ways. Last summer, my wife Karis and I celebrated 20 years of marriage. Now, that makes me feel old when I think of something for 20 years. And I can look at our relationship and say, okay, when we were married and I said, I love you, 20 years later, that love has grown. That love has deepened. But yet, even after 20 years, I can't just sit back and say, okay, yeah, you know, I know what it is to love my wife. No, every day, I've got to keep learning. I've got to keep growing in a deeper knowledge and a deeper understanding of how to express my love in different ways, at different times, in different contexts. And this is what Paul is praying for the Philippians in relationship to God. That as they learn about God, as they, they learn from him, they will develop a greater and a deeper love for God. And a love that will be expressed, fleshed out in their lives and in the context that they're living in. And by extension, this love for God is not just speaking of a vertical relationship of the individual believers to God, but by extension, that is going to flesh out to those around us, to other believers and to the unsaved world. Because just like the Apostle John said in 1 John 4.20, he who does not love his brother who he has seen, how can he say that he loves God who he has not seen? So as this love that Paul is praying for, for the Philippians, grows and deepens, they will understand how to express this love for God, but also through their relationship with others around them, whether those be brothers and sisters in Christ or whether those be the unsaved world. Now you may ask, okay, this is what Paul is praying, but why? What is the purpose, what is the reason why Paul would pray this for his dear friends in Philippi? Look at what he says now in verse 10. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent. Or we could say it this way, you may be able to discern what is best. The word for approve or discern carries the idea of critically examining something, putting something to a test and drawing conclusions about it. You know, and I think as we look at our world around us, there's a lot to triage in our world today. There's a lot of activities, there's a lot of causes that we can get involved in and that we can be really passionate about. But we have to be selective because we can't be involved in everything. We can't do everything. 
And so if we try to dabble here and there and be involved in 10 different things, we're going to find out that we're not doing any of them well because we're so spread out and we can't focus our attention. So what Paul is saying here to the Philippians is as your love is growing for God, as your love is being expressed towards others, towards the believers, towards unbelievers, this will give you, this discernment will give you the ability to be selective and to choose what is excellent. Now, what Paul's talking about here is not just choosing between right and wrong, between good and bad. I think the majority of us here wouldn't have a difficulty choosing between right and wrong. But what Paul says is not that you will choose what is good, but that you will choose what is best. That you will choose what is excellent, what is of surpassing value. And that often is the challenge. Because as we look at all the different things we could do, we could be involved in, we, feel, we might feel pulled to various different activities, various different causes or agendas because, well, that one's good and this one's good. But Paul says, no, I'm praying that you will have the wisdom to know what's best. And then he gives another qualifier that helps to clarify what he's saying. Because in verse 11, he's going to say, at the end of verse 10, and then into verse 11, he says, So be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus to the glory and praise of God. So now when Paul is talking about you need to choose what is best, he gives this eternal perspective to it. And this, I think, is what's going to help us as believers really be able to sort through all of the voices and all of the noise clamoring for our attention and say, okay, here's really what's best. What matters for eternity? What matters in the eternal perspective? Paul talks about the day of Christ. He gives an eternal perspective. Because there's a lot of things that we can be involved in that are good causes, but that aren't going to last and that really aren't going to make a difference in eternity. Paul talks about this with other, uh, with other churches. For example, when he writes to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your affections on things above where, God is, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We've got to have an eternal perspective, a perspective of evaluating what we see in light of the day of Christ. And then in verse 11, he talks about being filled with the fruits of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. What makes us ready for the day of Christ is not a product of our works. Yes, we are to be working. We are to be fleshing out our salvation. Like Paul says in chapter 2 and verse 12, work out, flesh out your salvation with fear and trembling. But then in the very next verse, he says, because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So what makes us ready for the day of Christ is God at work in us. And we know this, Paul makes it very clear. He wrote to the Ephesians, it's by grace that you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's not based on works. It's a gift of God. 
But yet we have the responsibility to flesh out, to work that out in our daily lives, in our relationships with one another. And we must do that with an eternal perspective so that we can, as Paul says, approve or discern what is the best. What is the best thing to be doing? Now, as Paul writes this and he prays this, he doesn't end here. He doesn't end by saying to the Philippians, I pray that God will give you wisdom to discern what is best. Now, you fill in the blank. I think if we keep reading in verses 12 and following, we're going to see, because Paul says to the believers, okay, here's what's really best. Look at what he says in verse 12. And I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to do what? To advance the gospel. And what Paul is saying is the thing that is best for us as believers in Jesus, among all the other things that could attract our attention, what is best is the advance of the gospel. And this meshes with what Jesus said in Matthew 6.33 when he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And when he says seek first, that word first is not just a chronology. It is an, a, an idea of priority. Make your first priority the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And as believers in Jesus Christ, that should be our main goal. That should be our all-consuming passion, to advance the gospel, to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, we are not put here on earth to serve or advance any human agenda, whether that agenda be political, whether that agenda be social, whether that agenda be ethnic, or even religious. That is not our main goal to be advancing a human agenda. Our main goal is to advance God's agenda, to spread the good news of Jesus Christ so that those who do know him will be united together in worshiping and in serving him, and those who don't know him will be attracted to him. So as citizens of heaven, Paul says, this is what's best. This is the agenda that we are to be working for. This is the one that is excellent compared to all the others. And when you look at how Paul frames this, it's very interesting because even when Paul personally, his own person, his own agenda, if you will, was attacked, look at what Paul says. He says, hey, some people are preaching Christ out of pure motives. They want Christ to be preached. They want him to be known. They want to announce him. Others, and I still can't figure out how this works, but others are preaching Christ because they hate me. And they somehow think the more that the news about Christ is spread, the more it's going to fall back on me and I'm going to have trouble. And what was Paul's reaction to that? Basically, he says, so what? It doesn't matter. As long as Christ is preached, Paul says, I am going to rejoice, even if it means more trouble for me, even if it means more hardship for me. You see, he wasn't, 
He wasn't looking at this selfishly. He wasn't looking at this in a way of saying, you know what, what's best for me? What's going to serve me? What's going to serve my ideals or my agenda? No, he says, what's going to serve Christ? What's going to most advance his kingdom, his gospel? That's what I want. And no matter what it means for me or my thoughts or my ideals, I can rejoice even in difficult circumstances because Christ is being preached. And in verses 20 down through 23, he talks about his desire to be with Christ. He says, for me, it's almost as as if like Paul is verbal processing in these verses. He's like, man, I don't know what I'm going to choose because on the one hand, you know, I'd love to go and I'd love to be with Christ. I mean, that would be so much better. But on the other hand, it's going to be so much more useful for you if I stay here and that's going to help you advance your faith. So, well, I know what's going to happen because it's all about God. It's all about advancing his kingdom. So of course I'm going to stay here because that's what's going to serve to advance God's kingdom. And it's like Paul is, is thinking out loud in these verses. But he says in verse 24, to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. And so, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue all with you all, verse 25, for your progress and your joy in the faith. So Paul isn't looking at this in any sort of a a self-centered way. He's looking at it and going, okay, what's going to advance the gospel among you? Then that's what I'm going to do. That's how I'm going to give my life. And then in verse 27 down to verse 30, he really brings it back. And I think this is really the crux of the entire book of Philippians. Look at what Paul says in verse 27. And I love the way that the NIV translates, introduces this phrase. He says, whatever happens... Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. This really is what the Christian life is all about. Take your situation that you're in right now. Take the thing that you're most concerned about, the situation. It might be a work situation. It might be a personal, a family situation. It might be a political situation. Or a social, you see the way society is going. Whatever you're concerned about, Paul says, whatever happens in any of those situations, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. This is what the Christian life is all about. It's not about our thing. It's not about advancing our ideals or our agenda. It's not even about preserving our safety or our rights or our lives. It's about the gospel. It's about advancing the name of Jesus Christ. And I think it's important, this call of the Apostle Paul is important for us today because there are so many things in our world right now that can divide us. There are so many issues that even as believers, even within the context of Colonial Baptist Church, brothers and sisters can fall on different sides of the line. And we can begin to 
lose sight of that eternal perspective and focus on the here and now. But God is sovereign over all of it. God is in control of all of it. And Paul says, look, leave that with God. Whatever happens, focus on the gospel. And then in verse 28, he says, and as you're focused on this, you're not frightened in any way by your opponents. And when we have the eternal perspective, it helps us to realize even who these opponents are. It's not somebody who's on the other side of a human agenda. An opponent is someone who is opposing the advance of God's kingdom. And there is a time coming in our culture, and I think we can see it coming when we look at the trend, the way society is trending. There is a time coming when we as Christians are going to have to stand united because there is going to be increasing opposition to the advance of Christ's kingdom. I was reading an article just the other week that in France, the French interior minister France is going through this thing where they are trying to crack down on the effects of radical Islam within France. And so the French interior minister made a statement and he said, we cannot discuss with people who refuse to write on paper that the law of the republic is superior to the law of God. And in doing so, he actually went on to say that he views evangelicals in France as an important can't remember the word he used. An important issue, an important, almost a danger. Now in the days since, I mean, it created a lot of flare-ups and they began to walk back, the interior ministry began to walk back on some of that rhetoric. But I think that kind of opinion is only going to get louder and louder. But we don't need to be frightened by those who oppose the advance of God's kingdom. Why? Because God is sovereign. God is in control. And even if the nations rage, like the psalmist said in Psalm 2, and join together against God and against God's anointed, God is still sitting in the heaven. He is on his throne. And the Bible says he who sits on the heaven, he laughs. There is nothing that any or all human beings can do to oppose God's plan. Jesus already promised us that. He said, I will build my church and the very gates of hell will not be able to withstand its advance. So we don't have to worry. We don't have to be concerned. If we have this eternal perspective, we don't have to be concerned with all of what's going on. And look at what Paul says then in verse 29, because this is, this is interesting. And I think it's very instructive to us. Paul says in verse 29, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. We could translate that, for the sake of Christ, you have been given grace. Given grace to do what? Look at what he says. There's two things he says in the second half of verse 29. That you should not only believe in him. So we have been given grace by God to believe in him. That's the gospel. But the second thing he says, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. I won't ask you to raise your hand this morning, but how many of us would say, oh yeah, when I define grace, I say suffering for God, that's part of grace. I don't think 
we think that way. I think in our society, when you look, so much of our society and our technological developments and all that are built around comfort, are built around ease, are built around escaping anything that makes life difficult. But Paul says, listen, you have been given a grace, a double grace, if you will. They go together to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him because the gospel has to advance. No matter what it might mean for us personally, no matter what it might, how it might impact a human agenda, that is all secondary. And again, we're not talking about good and bad. We're talking about good and better, good and best. The most excellent thing for a believer to pursue in their life is the advance of the gospel, the advance of the kingdom of God. And that's what Paul is saying here to the believers. And I think it's important that we realize that because if we miss that, then unity in Christ becomes very difficult. And when we continue into chapter 2, look at what Paul says. He explains that when our lives are centered around the gospel, it's going to promote unity and single-mindedness. So in verse 1, he says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So when we are all have an eternal perspective, united on the centrality of the gospel, and we're fleshing that out, we're all individually and collectively agreeing and saying, that is the excellent thing, that is the thing we need to pursue, then we're all going to be unified. But when we don't, look at what happens. In verse 3 and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And when we are set on advancing our own agenda, or we are set on linking up with a human agenda, whether it's political, social, ethnic, religious, and that becomes our primary focus, that's when the body of Christ becomes divided. Because now we're, we're looking at, we're, we're lowering our eyes from the heavenly eternal perspective to an earthly perspective, and that's what we're giving ourselves to. And we become divided, we become fractured. And then we start having spirits of envy and rivalry and selfish ambition. We want to advance ourselves or our agendas over and against somebody else. And Paul says, Christ is the ultimate example of this. And, and he lists, he goes through that in that, that famous passage from verses 5 to 11. We're not going to take the time to delve into that this morning. We don't have the time, but... He sets Christ as the perfect example. And if, and if ever any human being could have advanced his own agenda, it would have been Jesus. But what did Jesus say when he came? I came to do the will of my Father. I came to point people to God. And even when the crowds wanted to take him and make him king, he refused. He said, no, that's not why I'm here. 
I'm here to point people to God. So when we have this perspective, this eternal heavenly perspective, and we live in light of that, we're choosing the most excellent thing, which is advancing the gospel. And when we're united rather than divided over all these other agendas, look at what the result of that is going to be. In verse 14 of chapter 2, starting in verse 14, Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. So when we live this way, when we do things without the grumbling, without the murmuring, the expressing of our discontent, just like the people of Israel expressed a discontent and God said, you're not revolting against your human leaders, you're revolting against me who ultimately is in control. And arguing those differences of opinion, the, the verbal exchange, the back and forth that happens when we have this. Paul says, no, do everything without that. And again, he gives the reasons, he gives the whys. He says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So when we live this kind of a life, when we're united around Jesus, we're not divided, we're not arguing, we're not infighting, we're not complaining about the way things are going or arguing with others, but we're united and we're focused on the gospel, Paul says, you shine as lights in a dark world. Last weekend, we were out of town. We had gone down uh, for a missions retreat uh, in Greenville, and then on Sunday, that was on Saturday, and then on Sunday, we had to be at a supporting church where we were going to be giving an update, and so after we finished on Saturday night, we drove from Greenville up to uh, eastern Tennessee. If you know the Bristol area, it's kind of where North Carolina and Tennessee overlap, and as we were driving through the mountains there, uh, my son Elliot was with us, and he was in the back, and all of a sudden he goes, whoa, look at all those stars. You know, and we were on the highway, but there was no street lights. There was the occasional car coming, and you could look out, and it was dark all around. And you've been in those situations, right? You get out of the city, and you look up at the sky, and it's like, okay, where did all those stars come from? And when did they get so bright? And what Paul is saying here is as society around us gets darker and darker, we have the ability to shine like stars, if we are going to live with this kind of a heavenly mindset. But additionally, he says, not only will we shine like stars, reflecting the glory of God, but, verse 16, he says, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. When we live with a heavenly perspective, it gives us the assurance that on the day of Christ, when we stand before Christ and our works are examined, not for entrance into heaven, but Paul talks about we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the rewards for what we have done. Paul says when we have this kind of a mindset, we can rest assured that our labor is not in vain. 
Everything will not be burnt up. But if we spend our lives focused on human agendas, all of that is not going to last. It's not going to produce an eternal reward. So as we look at this this morning, as Paul's prayer for his friends, the Philippians, he says, I pray that you will have a love for God that is growing ever deeper so that as you love God and you are focused on God, you will be able to discern between what is just good and what is best. And that is my prayer for us as a body, for Colonial Baptist Church, that God will give us a love for him that surpasses all other loves so that as we choose, what am I going to give myself to? What am I going to invest in? We only have one life. We only have one shot at it in this world. We invest our lives for something. As we choose how we will invest our lives, that God will give us the wisdom to say, okay, here's what's best. All this other stuff may be good, but this is what's best. This is what's excellent. And I'm going to give myself for this, looking forward and with my eyes fixed on the day of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we have the assurance that we are living a life that's not lived in vain. We are living to advance the kingdom of God, which will advance, which will conquer, which will win. So let's give ourselves, let's give our lives for that and live in a unity that's centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer. And then Pastor Ben will come and dismiss us. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that your word gives us perspective and gives us clarity on life. Father God, we know from what we read in your inspired word that the cause of your kingdom is greater than anything that we could possibly live for on this earth. So God, I ask us that you give us this love. Give us an ever deepening love in our hearts so that everything else that vies for our time and our attention fades away from our vision so that we can see only you. And then God, help us to flesh that out in such a way as we live in community with one another and as we live in front of and in contact with the world around us, the unsaved world around us, God, help us to shine as lights and to live a life that's not in vain for your glory. We cannot do this on our own, God. So we pray that your spirit will work in us. Give us the desire and fulfill that, the fulfillment of it, so that your name might be glorified, that your gospel might be spread, and that your kingdom might advance for your glory. We ask all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.